Hello and welcome to the March 15th, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I suppose we could say this is the Annals Ides of March podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to share highlights of what's new in Annals since our last podcast two weeks ago. Health disparities and social determinants of health in the U.S. are beginning to receive the attention these issues deserve. And the first new article to highlight is a retrospective analysis that found that socioeconomically disadvantaged older adults face a greater risk of decline in function and cognition after an intensive care unit hospitalization than socioeconomically advantaged older adults. Older adults are more vulnerable than their younger counterparts to experiencing new or worsening impairments in function, cognition, and mental health after a critical illness, also known as post-intensive care syndrome. The number of older adults who survive an ICU stay is rising with the aging of the U.S. population, improvements in survival after critical illness, and with the surge in ICU admissions during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, there has been a lack of data regarding equity in patient outcomes after ICU stay. In the study reported in this new Annals article, researchers from Yale School of Medicine compared decline in function, cognition, and mental health between dual-enrolled Medicare and Medicaid recipients and their non-dual eligible counterparts. Dual Medicare and Medicaid eligibility correlates with social vulnerability, and dual-enrolled adults are known to have greater chronic disease burden and worse health outcomes for many conditions compared with non-dual eligible Medicare beneficiaries. The authors analyzed data of 641 patients drawn from the National Health and Aging Trends Study, a longitudinal national survey of Medicare beneficiaries aged 65 years and older. The survey included items that measured cognitive function, depression, and anxiety. The researchers found that socioeconomic disadvantage was associated with a decline in function and cognition, but not with symptoms of depression and anxiety after discharge from an intensive care unit. After accounting for risk factors including age, frailty, comorbidity, and pre-ICU disability, the authors found that dual eligible beneficiaries developed a nearly 30% greater burden of disability than their non-dual eligible counterparts. Even after adjusting for confounders, dual eligible beneficiaries had nearly tenfold greater odds of cognitive decline after ICU hospitalization than non-dual eligible beneficiaries. According to the authors, post-ICU mental health symptoms seemed driven by pre-ICU mental health, although symptoms were worse among dual-enrolled beneficiaries. These findings highlight the need to prioritize socially vulnerable older adults for rehabilitation and recovery efforts after an episode of critical illness. Next is a commentary that offers advice to physicians caring for detained immigrants and asylum seekers on hunger strike and calls for medical professional associations to support these physicians. The commentary discusses that, given the vulnerability and lack of agency experienced by people in detention, the medical community is in a unique position to help them. Early reporting of post-acute SARS-CoV-2 syndrome, commonly referred to as long COVID, foretells a difficult challenge that is developing in parallel to the ongoing pandemic. Some patients with prior acute COVID-19 infection report multiple new or persistent symptoms affecting nearly every organ system. In the U.S., post-acute SARS-CoV-2 syndrome has already been identified for inclusion and protection within the Americans with Disabilities Act, despite lack of consensus on the definition of the condition and very limited study data on outcomes. Next is a commentary that discusses the unique challenge in obtaining high-quality scientific evidence on post-acute SARS-CoV-2 syndrome. 
The inherent sources of potential bias in studying this new phenomenon requires that the medical community both understand study design and study limitations when generating, disseminating, and consuming reports of long COVID. The authors advocate for strong study designs in diverse populations to inform our understanding of this condition and develop strategies to prevent, diagnose, and treat it. This month's In the Clinic Review is on type 1 diabetes. Internal medicine physicians generally are more comfortable caring for patients with type 2 diabetes than they are caring for patients with type 1. Yet it is important that they understand the very different pathophysiology of these diseases in order to manage patients optimally. The review discusses the pathophysiology, epidemiology, diagnosis, and management of type 1 diabetes, providing a practical primer for generalists to participate in the care of patients with this condition. Next is a report of a study of adults with chronic non-cancer pain that found that state laws designed to govern opioid prescribing have had very little effect on opioid prescribing or non-opioid pain treatment for this population. In response to the opioid crisis, clinical guidelines emphasize the use of non-opioid treatment or low doses of opioids when clinically necessary. Many states have passed laws designed to curb opioid prescribing trends. Opponents argue that these laws restrict providers' clinical judgment, impose an administrative burden, and may have adverse effects on patients. However, the law's effects are unclear because of challenges in disentangling multiple laws implemented around the same time. Researchers from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health studied commercial insurance claims for over 7 million adults in 13 treatment states that had enacted one of four types of opioid prescribing laws and implemented no other related laws two years before or after enacting the law of interest. These laws include opioid prescribing cap laws, pill mill laws, mandatory prescription drug monitoring program clery laws, and mandatory prescription drug monitoring program enrollment laws. These states were individually matched with states that did not enact laws during the study timeframe to determine if these laws were associated with trends in opioid and guideline-concordant non-opioid pain treatment. The data showed that opioid prescribing laws were each associated with a less than 1% change in opioid prescribing trends during the first two years of implementation. According to the authors, these findings suggest that the decreasing volume of opioid prescribing in the United States may be driven more by shifting clinical guidelines, professional norms, or other factors than by opioid prescribing laws. The next article reports a post hoc subgroup analysis of the aspirin in reducing events in the elderly trial that found no clear harm or benefit to continuing or stopping aspirin use in older adults with no comorbidities. The trial was a primary prevention trial of 19,114 aspirin-using adults aged 70 years and older. The results of the trial demonstrated that aspirin had no benefit for disability-free survival, prevention of cardiovascular disease events, or prevention of incident cancer, and increased risk for major bleeding and all-cause mortality. Researchers from the University of Tasmania conducted a post-hoc subgroup analysis of 1,714 adults aged 70 years or older taking aspirin two more days a week before enrollment in the trial. The authors compared outcomes between patients who ceased and patients who continued aspirin usage. Over a follow-up period of 4.9 years, the authors found that patients who ceased aspirin use experienced increased rates of all-cause mortality, incident dementia, persistent physician disability, and cardiovascular events, but the wide confidence intervals deemed the findings inconclusive. 
The authors reported that no substantial increased risk for major hemorrhage and cancer was seen with continued aspirin use. The authors note that the absence of an effect on hemorrhage may relate to cell selection for tolerance among aspirin users. An accompanying editorial advises that this analysis alone should not be used as a justification for continuing primary prevention with aspirin in adults over 70 years of age. However, the editorials also note that chronological age alone may not be the best way to make this decision. Instead, they suggest an approach that considers age, comorbidities, competing risk of non-cardiovascular disease death, and bleeding risk annually to inform decisions about aspirin use. To maximize the efficiency of resources and reduce redundancy, organizations and countries may decide to adapt an existing practice guideline rather than develop a new one. The right statement, reporting items for practice guidelines in healthcare, currently informs the reporting of guideline development. However, it does not cover reporting of steps that are specific to guideline adaptation. Next is an article that describes a new reporting tool designed to improve standardization and transparency of adapted healthcare guidelines. The checklist tool focuses on improving the clarity and explicitness of recommendations that have been adapted for use in different healthcare systems. Different audiences may use the checklist for different purposes. Guideline developers could use a checklist to report their adapted guidelines. Journal editors and reviewers could use a checklist to ensure the completeness and transparency of the reporting and the publication of adapted guidelines. Clinicians could accurately identify and apply adapted recommendations to their clinical practice based on detailed and clear reporting. And policymakers could evaluate the feasibility of adapted recommendations for local implementation based on the reporting context suggested by the checklist. Also newer two on being a doctor essays, one titled Lifting the Illusion addresses the ways that people suffering from depression hide their pain from others. In the second, titled The Shooting, an internal medicine resident describes the harrowing event of a fatal shooting in the patient care areas of a hospital. Additional web-only material includes Annals for Hospitalists. Check it out for key points from recent articles of relevance to hospital medicine physicians and a brief commentary on caring for patients with acute pain episodes secondary to sickle cell disease. Also new are two Annals on Call podcast episodes, one on procalcitonin in the diagnosis of infection and one on adrenal incidentalomas. Finally, in the new episode, the Annals Consult guys and guests Dr. Abital Oglasser discuss the appropriate timing of elective surgery for patients with a positive pre-admission COVID-19 test. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. Go to annals.org to access new material I've mentioned. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.